Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's uh, Frankly Speaking podcast uh, of Friends of Europe. Now, first of all, dear viewers, you will see that I'm not Tracy Dafters, our usual uh, very competent moderator. Uh, I'm standing in for Tracy this week. Uh, it's a pleasure to do so, but Tracy, uh, this is not a coup d'etat, uh, so please uh, come back to your usual role uh, as soon as possible. Uh, I'm Jamie Shea, a Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Um, our podcast, as you know, uh, focuses on the war in Ukraine. Uh, but today we're going to explore a slightly different angle of this conflict, which is the dimension of space and space capabilities and the way that they have played so far quite a significant role uh, in the uh, evolution of the Ukrainian conflict. Now, to explain this uh, maybe uh, at first sight surprising uh, connection, um, I'm delighted to welcome today my uh, colleague, a senior fellow at Friends of Europe, Paul Taylor. Uh, Paul, of course, is a well-known voice uh, on these weekly podcasts. Uh, Paul has just completed a major study for Friends of Europe on space and why it matters for Europe. It's called Running Out of Space, European Security in Space. And uh, it's available, of course, if you wish to read the whole report, and I strongly recommend that you do, uh, on the Friends of Europe website. Now, Paul uh, was with us in Brussels uh, last Monday for a space summit uh, at which we launched uh, Paul's uh, latest uh, uh, report. Uh, and, and so I've asked Paul to uh, be with us today, first of all, to explain why space has played a role in the Ukrainian conflict uh, and what we've learned about the importance of uh, access to space capabilities as the conflict has unfolded. So we'll start with Ukraine, but Paul's report uh, more generally is on how well the European Union is positioned in the race to space. So we're going to broaden our conversation. To, so to give me a chance to ask Paul about Europe's strengths and weaknesses, uh, Europe's uh, priorities. Uh, at the very end, we'll perhaps come back to the burning question today, which is not space related, but which is the EU summit uh, welcoming uh, Ukraine as a candidate uh, country for future uh, membership. But let's go immediately to space. So Paul, as always, uh, many thanks for being on the podcast today. Uh, so give us a sense of uh, why space, uh, uh, seemingly remote from Ukraine, nonetheless has had an impact on the war thus far. Well, thank you, Jamie. Um, even before the first shot was fired in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, we saw new uses of space um, that have really revolutionized and are in the process of revolutionizing uh, the nature of warfare. Uh, and those have implications for security for everybody going forward. Uh, for one thing, uh, you'll remember those uh, satellite images of uh, tank parks and tanks, uh, uh, you know, in, in great long columns uh, heading towards the uh, Ukrainian border and so on. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of those were provided by commercial satellite imagery of a good enough uh, quality that uh, they might not be quite military quality, but they were uh, enabled you know, civilians to tell what was going on in the bases around uh, uh, Ukraine weeks before the actual invasion began. So. Um, one thing that's changed is that the, the sort of commercialization and democratization of satellite imagery means that states no longer have a monopoly and therefore states no longer uh, can, can be guaranteed to have the element of strategic surprise. Um, and so that was 
uh, a major factor, I think, in the build-up to the war. Number two was that on the very first day of the, the conflict, um, a Russian hack uh, took down uh, the, the downlink from uh, Viasat satellites um, to terminals all over Europe, and more specifically in Ukraine. And those terminals, uh, the Russians knew, were being used by the Ukrainian military um, for um, connections between headquarters and units in the field. And so um, all of a sudden, Ukraine found itself uh, not completely uh, paralyzed, but certainly uh, severely reduced by uh, in its capability to communicate between headquarters and units in the field and to target and so on by the taking out of those satellite terminals. Now, that was done not by an attack in space, but on an attack on, on Earth, a cyber attack on the on the downlink from the satellite um, to the terminals. But it's a classic example of vulnerabilities. And we have those vulnerabilities in Europe in our systems, too. Um, indeed, it, it's thought that the vulnerability uh, concerned was probably located in Switzerland. Um, now, um, the, the third use of space then was that, uh, once again, the private sector came in. And Elon Musk, no doubt mm -hmm. with the blessing of the US government, uh, jumped in and said, I will donate uh, uh, terminals to um, uh, the Ukrainians so that they can replace the ones that have been taken out um, with terminals that will enable them to connect their headquarters to the field and so on. And he did so in very short order. Within a couple of weeks, um, there were you know, hundreds of um, uh, Skylink uh, terminals uh, around Ukraine. And the result was uh, that the Ukrainians were able to use them very quickly uh, to connect um, their spotted drones um, to their um, artillery firing systems and, and, and to make deadly hits on uh, Russian armor. And so um, there was an immediate use on the ground, but there was also a tremendous uh, use in keeping um, telephone and internet connections going throughout Ukraine uh, when the Russians were trying desperately to take them down by attacking um, telecoms towers and things like that. And therefore, this space-based connectivity enabled the Ukrainians to keep the information flow going. And that was tremendously important, as we've seen, for their strategic com communications. At no time was uh, President Zelensky uh, uh, impeded from broadcasting, his nightly broadcast, for example. Um, uh, images from uh, Mariupol of the, 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 the scale of destruction. Those were, those were broadcast by satellite um, around the world. And so you can see the, the uses both in terms of STRATCOM and in terms of strict military capability. And the third thing I think would say is that um, the Ukrainians from very early on were able to retaliate against a Russian cyber capabilities uh, and to defeat Russian attempts at cyber attacks by mobilizing a huge international volunteer army, if you like, of um, cyber hackers, um, the cyber community, as it's um, somewhat uh, euphemistically called. Um, those are people who've been um, terrible thorns in the side of Western governments on many occasions and of NATO. But then um, they turn around and they, they're on our side for well, a, this time a they, change. They have at least temporarily changed sides. Um, however, um, their power is also something that we should worry about going forward because it won't always be on our side.
Uh, I, I, I guess that, Paul. No, th thank you. That, that's absolutely uh, uh, fascinating. But, uh, and Paul, this suggests that uh, space is becoming a, a domain of increased sort of geopolitical competition, that its military role is increasing all the time. Um, what does it mean in general, if you like, for uh, the future of space? So I've, I, I imagine that you know, most of us think that space is a kind of global commons, right? It belongs to all of humanity. It should be there for uh, the use of all of uh, humanity, particularly when we think of, uh, you know, tracking climate change, uh, for instance, or you mentioned the internet running our communications, our economies, our banking systems. Uh, but is this now a, an idle dream to think that space can remain a sort of a UN-governed global commons? Are we now seeing sort of countries, uh, particularly the large military powers, increasingly sort of take a slice of space for themselves, uh, militarize the, the domain, uh, make it increasingly dangerous to operate up there, particularly as you mentioned, in a conflict like Ukraine, he who controls space probably controls the outcome of the conflict. So where exactly are we in sort of global commons versus Cold War style militarization when it comes to space? Well, I think I think the main, you know, there are two or three uh, major uh, features, uh, Jamie. The, the regulation of space that is in place was put there in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, when the Outer Space Treaty uh, and a, a couple of other treaties that followed on from it uh, were, were adopted. But they were designed for a completely different era, for a, um, a, you know, only states using space and using space for uh, essentially um, uh, uh, military and scientific purposes, um, no private sector in space and so on. Um, and uh, that was... Uh, uh, th those rules then applied, but they, no, there was nobody there to enforce them, but they were respected by broadly by both sides. But they didn't say an awful lot. What they said was that uh, space was a global common, yes, that it was for the common benefit of humanity, that nobody could appropriate um, uh, uh, planets or uh, celestial bodies, um, so there was essentially no ownership in space, um, and that nobody could... Um, deploy weapons of mass destruction in space. Well, um, that was very important at the time, which was the nuclear arms race. Um, but of course, it's somewhat irrelevant to the current nature of weapons where you can do all sorts of other things that don't involve nuclear weapons um, to disrupt, disrupt uh, space. So what's happened in the meantime is two things. First of all, the number of states involved in space has hugely increased. There are now 58 countries that in one way or another are involved in space. Uh, and they include not only, of course, China, which is the rising power and increasingly the rival of the United States in space, but also um, small powers that are, uh, are important in different ways. European powers, but Iran, Israel, um, North Korea, all of which have their own, as it were, agenda in space. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing, huge uh, change, is the arrival of the commercial sector in force. So there are now more commercial satellites um, active in space than there are um, um, government-owned satellites. In fact, uh, a single man, Elon Musk, uh, owns more than all, half of all of the active satellites in space, around 2,200 out of, out of 4,300 estimated active satellites in space. Um, so that's, those are two huge uh, changes. A third change um, is that we have... Uh, more and more debris flying around in space, space junk, which is a mixture of bolts and rivets that have fallen off spacecraft, um, 
launches that haven't re-entered and burned up as they were supposed to. Uh, um, but also, um, you know, and, and dud satellites, dead satellites, the uh, satellites that were struck by space weather by meteorites, um, bits of meteorite themselves. And finally, um, debris that was man-made deliberately created um, by uh, tests of anti-satellite weapons, you know, ground-based rockets that are used to attack a satellite to demonstrate the ability to take another country's satellite out. And the two um, tests that have created the most persistent debris uh, were by China in 2007 and Russia in 2019. So each of those produced a field of sort of 1,500 pieces of trackable debris or more. So at the moment, there are like 30,000 or more um, pieces of debris that can be tracked in space, many more tiny pieces, each of which is traveling at sort of speeds of three kilometers a second or upwards. And, you know, they, they can cause immense damage if they collide with a satellite. So we have a, a situation where there is a legal basis, but actually it's, it's the world, it's the Wild West. You know, the two laws that really apply in space at the moment are first come, first served and finders keepers. All right. So we're look, so looking at more congestion as there's more activity, uh, old fashioned, outdated rules that uh, go back to the 60s and badly need to be updated for the current uh, situation, increasing geopolitical rivalry, of course, as space becomes an increasingly important asset uh, for great powers and, and conflict. And interestingly, you know that in space, the private sector and, and billionaires like Elon Musk can have even greater influence uh, over our futures uh, than they even do uh, on land. Uh, that, that, that's quite extraordinary that Elon Musk owns uh, half of the satellites that are up there and maybe more tomorrow. But Paul, uh, at the uh, the space summit that I referred to in my introduction, uh, just before you, you, the launch of your latest report, we, we heard from Joseph Ashafaka, the uh, Director General of the European Space Agency, warning that Europe is falling behind. Um, it was quite alarmist, uh, though it was refreshingly frank uh, to hear him say that, but uh, is this a, a view that you share? And if so, you know, where is Europe falling behind? Because you know, clearly the, the, we have the European Space Agency, I just mentioned it, we have the, the activities of the European Union, we have many EU countries, the UK, France, for instance, uh, others that invest in space, have space capabilities. So it's not as if Europe has completely neglected this uh, area. So um, uh, if we are falling behind in Europe, uh, where are we falling behind? And again, does it really matter? Is it okay to be sort of fourth or fifth or sixth? Or, or are there serious security implications if you're not sort of first, second and third? Yeah, I, um, um, sharp questions, Jamie. I think, first of all, uh, one has to say that, that the EU has some great assets that make it a key player in space. It has the Galileo satellite navigation and positioning system. Uh, it has the, which is the world's most accurate. It has the uh, Copernicus uh, observation uh, network, which uh, is, is, is absolutely crucial for observing uh, climate change, but also um, crop patterns, weather patterns, and so on. Um, it has uh, the Ariane and Vega launchers, um, which have for a long time been the workhorses of um, the, the, the international space business, along with Russia's uh, Soyuz rockets, but are now aging and the next generation is um, uh, running behind schedule. So there's a bit of a gap in capability, just as we've lost the access to Soyuz because of the Ukraine conflict and the fact that we're no longer doing business with Russia in space. 
We have the Kourou spaceport, um, which is on the equator pretty much in French Guiana, and therefore it has a fantastic uh, launch site, but we don't have any um, launch sites so far in continental Europe on our own uh, uh, mainland, um, although there are many possibilities that it might that might come about in the next year and, and also by at sea perhaps. Um, and we have an EU satellite center, which although under-resourced, um, uh, analyzes um, the, all, the, all the data coming from European satellites for European governments to give them sort of something of a strategic picture from space. That said, you know, the three areas in which we're really falling seriously behind the United States and possibly China is in reusable and micro launchers. You know, last week, um, just last week, um, a, 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 a SpaceX rocket um, put um, satellites into space on its 13th mission and then plopped down onto a drone landings uh, pad in the Atlantic um, to be refurbished and used for a 14th time. We don't have a single reusable launcher and we're not about to get one. So that's one. Um, satellite constellations is another. I talked about the Starlink constellation. Um, the UK has made a public investment um, in, a, in a firm called OneWeb, which is putting up um, a, a constellation as well. But um, the EU and continental Europe has no satellite constellation. We now have a proposal for that from Commissioner Breton, but member states as usual are saying, oh, do we really need it? Why should it be public money and so on? Um, and then um, the, the, the other area where we're really trailing, and I think that's perhaps the most dangerous one for us, is um, what's known as space situational awareness, the ability to see what's going on in space. And that leads then to space defense capabilities. You can only defend your assets in space if you know what's facing them. And frankly, at the moment, the only way we, most of us in Europe know if um, a piece of debris or a hostile satellite is about to hit one of our precious satellites is if the US military tells us, because we have almost no capability of our own. Um, and will we be able to rely indefinitely on the US military uh, to perform that public service, which the um, a Trump administration moved from the Defense Department to the Commerce Department. So will it be a commercialized service? Is it a service the United States might switch off at some stage? And, and, and can we, for our own sovereignty, uh, do we want to go on relying entirely on the US military? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm butting in because I, uh, I think this is a key point, right? I mean, we've been discussing uh, on these podcasts, like we have in Friends of Europe for a long time now, where, you know, where uh, the concept of European strategic autonomy you know, has its merits and its priorities. So do you think that space should be a priority for European strategic autonomy? Uh, I suppose, you know, many countries would think, well, you know, as you just said, we've relied upon the Americans for many years. They're our allies in NATO. Uh, they've always, you know, provided uh, the intelligence, uh, the GPS signals, everything that we've needed. So should Europe uh, duplicate what the US has because the US might not provide those assets in the future or would you recommend that Europe would more try to sort of fill in sort of niches around the edges where it could not replace but rather augment what the US has provided so you know how far along the road of strategic autonomy should Europe try to go in space well I think firstly that the that Europe does need its own connectivity and that's something that is um, uh, you know both a commercial and a, a, a strategic need um, and um, Secondly, we won't be able to, to, to duplicate everything the United States does anyway, because, you know, the United States has been investing in public money 
um, in the United States, the, 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 you know, the, the Pope of the private sector has been making public investments of $55 billion a year, every year, roughly, since the 1960s or equivalent. And we are putting in this year perhaps 8 billion euros if we're really uh, generous in adding together the money of the EU, of uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, and national spending. So we're not going to get there. But we do need to do fill certain pockets that, 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 that give us access to space, which means launches, um, visibility as to what's going on in space, that space situational awareness, which then for the military becomes space domain awareness, and connectivity, secure connectivity, because already you can see that other powers are you know, um, trying to grab purloin data in space um, in order to uh, crack uh, codes and encryption when quantum encryption breaking comes around in the next few years. And so if we're not in that game, then we're, then we're in real trouble. Um, and I think that means we need to build on the, the mental shift that is happening since the start of the Ukraine war. Europeans are, need, are starting to get more real about defense in general, and we need to get real about space defense. Um, some member spaces, some of the member states, the bigger ones, have created their military space commands. Some of them have promulgated space defense strategies. Others remain reluctant to treat space as a strategic domain. I think of Germany's new aerospace and space coordinator, uh, Frau Christmann, who goes to extraordinary lengths to talk only about the environmental and commercial benefits um, of space and, and not to address uh, the military implications. So Germany, it's one of those other areas where Germany needs to get real in this Titan vendor, this change of era that they have announced in yep. their defense policy. So you, you see a role specifically for the EU in addition, obviously, to what the EU member states at the national level, that's where I suppose the real capabilities, particularly in the military field, lie at the moment. But Yeah, uh, yeah I think the EU has... A, it could has be the a, division of labor here, do you think? Well, I think the EU has a role in providing enablers, as it were. Um, for providing channels for, for secure communication, for providing, um, you know, all of the things that enable Europeans to see a common picture. And the EU could very well work in this area with NATO because um, NATO has recently promulgated its first space defense policy, uh, um, but it doesn't actually have any assets itself. It's entirely dependent on its member states and in particular on number one. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it would be a no-brainer to say that the EU could supply services to NATO. Um, and we have a, um, a NATO-EU agreement where they've agreed so far to cooperate in 74 different areas, but space is not yet one of them. So yeah. I think that... Hopefully that will be for the next joint declaration. Paul, I, I, the, the, the clock ticks so quickly when we're doing these podcasts. Uh, but uh, as we've got you know, five minutes or so, I need to ask you sort of two final things. The first thing is that, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, in your report, you make a lot of sort of recommendations as to the way ahead. I, uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, for you to go through them all in detail. Although, as I said, your report is available uh, on the Friends of Europe website. Uh, but what would be in your, your mind, you know, the, the first, second, third, maybe you know, the three most important recommendations very briefly? But I have to ask you to be brief because I want to ask you finally about Ukraine and EU membership, given that, of course, uh, we are living today a, a potentially hi and a historic day. So we can't let that go without at least a, a small mention. 
Yeah, I think number one would be um, uh, Europe needing, needs to act fast and invest more in space um, and that the EU is the relevant uh, level uh, to do this um, for most of uh, our space needs, um, but member states will have to actually provide the, the, the sort of defense capabilities, I think. I don't think uh, uh, the EU will do that collectively. Um, number two um, is, uh, it, we, you know, investment in space situational awareness. You know, if you can't see what's going on in space, um, then, you know, it's not much point having a space defense policy, frankly. Um, we need to be able to see what's going on, who's threatening us, um, and where our own uh, uh, systems are at risk. And number three is a regulatory push um, on space traffic management. You know, we have a situation at the moment of sort of free-for-all. There's nobody, uh, no authority, international authority that says who can launch what, who can park where in space. Um, uh, you know, and there's no fining for litter. Um, all, all of these things need to be put under um, some sort of international authority. Yeah, it's like a sort of space equivalent of, you know, the rules for civilian uh, aviation, right? Yeah, it's space traffic management and so on, uh, or at least a highway code of uh, traffic lights and driving on the left and driving on the right. Paul, uh, that, uh, that's all very clear. So uh, just before we wrap up, uh, as I mentioned, a potentially historic day, uh, Moldova, but Ukraine uh, being given candidate status uh, uh, for the EU, maybe Georgia with conditions uh, down the road. Um, I suppose it was almost inevitable that the EU would need to take this decision in order to give the Ukrainians a much needed sort of shot in the arm, a boost uh, at a moment, of course, when they're experiencing a national tragedy and uh, obviously showing that uh, through resisting Russia, they fully share European values. But of course, turning this in, into reality, uh, to use a phrase of our dear friend, uh, the former NATO Secretary General Yaptahub Skefer, will be a long and winding road, right? So what can the EU do to sort of prevent all of this, you know, ending in tears as the years go by uh, and uh, the EU pretends to accept Ukraine and the Ukrainians pretend to accept EU standards? Uh, I'm not trying to be at all uh, sceptical or cynical here, far, far from it. But, but of course, it's a demanding enterprise. So how do we translate that into reality? Well, you're right to point out that this is essentially a political gesture of support. And it's a gesture that the EU couldn't not make. Um, and it does commit the EU in some sense, as well as Ukraine, because um, it, it, you know, it says that um, Ukraine will one day be a member of the European Union if it meets the criteria. Um, and so that will, of course, be a very long process. Ukraine was a, a country that was nowhere near EU membership standards before the war. Um, and much of the country, its infrastructure, um, part, key parts of its economy have since been destroyed. Um, so uh, the rule of law may, may be less of an issue currently um, it, it, for, for the reasons which we all see tragically. But um, those issues will persist. The things that the EU can do that make a real difference in the meantime will be to give Ukraine massive budget support because, you know, so far Ukraine has been running with the, the money it had in its coffers and with some international uh, funding, um, but that um, is running out. They need um, very large amounts of money. I've seen, heard, seen estimates of, you know, 70 billion euro a year um, to keep going, um, plus uh, armaments. I and mean, this is to keep the sort of civilian budget going. And this is not even reconstruction. This is just, as it were, keeping the show on the road. And the alternative 
um, is that the central bank ha- um, prints lots of revenue, uh, which are not really backed by foreign exchange, and uh, um, you have high yeah, so, so the, 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 you know the, the alternative is is an economic meltdown. Um, so that's I think the big challenge that the EU can um, and nobody else. I mean, the United States has done a lot, and in fact is ahead of the EU in terms of money donated so far. But one can see that with a congressional election uh, midterm uh, approaching. Uh, the U.S. capability to go on doing that is very much in doubt. Um, and the Europeans should not rely, uh, should not have to rely on the United States to, to plug those gaps. Um, uh, and then there's the question of weapons. Well, weapons, uh, we, you know, we, we're reaching a point where um, Ukraine is, is switching from the legacy Soviet weapons it had, where we've been able to help them somewhat with uh, what was left in Western stocks, um, to Western armaments, which will require training, but also, you know, there are not masses of them lying around. You know, you know, U- European armies were under-resourced. The United States is the only armed forces um, that can open vast reserves of munitions or, or, or weaponry. Um, and so we're going to have to step up production of those things in Western Europe as well, um, both for ourselves to backfill what we've given to Ukraine and for the Ukrainians. So those are the two things, and I think those are more important than the, 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 the other issues about starting accession negotiations. We've given them, to, we will be giving them today or tomorrow this, this morale boost of saying, you're part of the family. But after that, you know, there'll be infinite problems. The French say we can't enlarge the EU anymore until we streamline decision-making, get rid of um, vetoes on foreign policy. The Germans are saying something very similar, and ominously, the Germans are also saying, and before the next enlargement, we want more voting rights in the Council uh, and uh, ministers, and we want more voting rights in the European Parliament. Because it's true that demographically, Germany is underrepresented, and small countries like Malta and Cyprus and so on are overrepresented. That's been the case since the foundation of the EU. But uh, the, the bigger it gets, the more difficult that zero sum game of allocating voting weights and seats in parliament becomes. So there's lots of those problems ahead, but they're problems for, you know, maybe in 10 years time. You know, I don't know how, how long you're intending to live, Jamie, but... Well, not... I, I hope longer than that, Paul, but, but from what you say, I may not live, uh, even if I live a hopefully a long life, and you do too, Paul, may not live to see Ukraine completing the 35 chapters and meeting EU standards. But so, so yes, yeah, so as always with the EU, uh, you get punished for doing the right thing from a historical perspective. But of course, uh, Ukraine is, as you rightly say, is not just Ukraine, it's also an instrument which reopens many long standing issues uh, in the European Union about yeah. uh, functionality, about justice, uh, equity when it comes to voting and so on. Paul Taylor, thank you. Uh, as always, a very rich discussion. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights, uh, both on uh, on Ukraine, on, on space, on the EU. Um, we will be back next week, hopefully with Tracy back in the chair uh, for another Friends of Europe, frankly speaking, uh, podcast. But that is all for now. Uh, so, Paul, I wish you a good day. Uh, I say farewell from Brussels. Thank you, as always, dear listeners, for tuning in uh, and for your loyalty. We appreciate it. Uh, And as I've said, uh, we will have another one for you next week. Bye for now.